Welcome to Ludicrously Specific, the audio-based internet podcast about movies and annoyingly detailed connections between them. I'm Doug, and my favorite jazz musician is John Coltrane. I'm Darren, and my favorite jazz musician is Louis Armstrong. And I'm Steve, and I couldn't pick one, so uh, Damn no, you. in no particular order, my favorite jazz musicians are Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, the Sunny Clark Trio, Art Blake and the Jazz Messengers, Dizzy Gillespie, the Gil Evans Orchestra, Shirley Bassey, St. Germain, Nina Simone. Is this Take just the jazz section of your <laughs> iTunes? I would, have just cho- I would have chosen a few. If, I, I if would... the rules were we could pick more than one. <laughs> yeah. I'm not finished. Dave Brubeck, Sonny Rollins, Down to the Bone, Cannibal Adderley, John oh. Coltrane, Buddy Rich, the Modern Jazz Quartet, and what the hell, Bleeding Gums Murphy. Listen to none of this because <laughs> it should be just one. It should it's be It's just but the rules. And I'm would... going to vouch for David S. Ware since we're giving multiple ones. But why are we talking about jazz anyway steve because uh, not because i obviously love jazz but also because we are doing three movies featuring a jazz musician playing a version of themselves who made a recording with the words round midnight in the title that sounds ludicrously specific <laughs> um it's very ludicrous now specific. of course we'll do what what's becoming a normal trend of uh talking about what we've been watching as well but just before we go into it, should we mention why we've become quite so ludicrously specific and why you won't be hearing the, uh, the, the movie Round Midnight as one of these we, three? We, we, we tried. We tried. We, we tried. We looked God for bless Round us. Midnight with Dexter Gordon and we yes. could not find a copy of it. So that was our original thought. We were going to watch this movie and then move on from there and find a couple of others. And so we started with that premise and then we just went, well, let's find some other musicians who have done Round Midnight the song. Or... In the case yes. of one of them, an album using the words round midnight. It's very jazzy. It pays jazzy. to be flexible. Yeah. Best <laughs> jazz is improvised. That's right. <laughs> and um, some of these films seem to be improvised as well to varying degrees. One of them definitely. Um, yes. And uh, we'll get into that. So, um, But before uh, we get into that, let's talk about um, what, what have you been watching since uh, we convened last, uh, Darren? What have I been watching? I have been watching the second, third, and fourth and fifth Dirty Harry movies. Right. It's, nice. um, and your which ones do you recommend out of those? The the second and the third are um, are really good, and I can't remember the titles because they all just bleed from one. So there's the Magnum other. Force. There's the Enforcer. Those are the two. There's Sudden Impact and Deadpool. Is that right? Not to be confused. Yeah, I yeah, think the, the Deadpool. Deadpool. Yeah, yeah, the Deadpool. It's um, but yeah, the the first two, the uh, Magnum Force. Yeah. Is really cool. Has a nice sort of seventies vibe. The um, the next one that has uh, Cagney not Lacey or Lacey not Cagney in it <laughs> is is also a pretty cool film. And then it goes all eighties to hell. Right. It's mm. very. Um, it's sort of a very eighties action film. That's the uh, the the one with Sandra Locke. And is that the Enforcer? It's, uh, I, think I think that's Sudden Impact. Sudden Impact, Sudden yeah. Impact. It's too long, that one. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and 280s, and it's uh, the Lalo Schifrin score. Lalo is usually really reliable. It's just, this is, this is an 80s action film. And uh, Dirty Harry is such a, um, a fascist superhero. <laughs> 
is this kind of like the Death Wish uh, trajectory where it goes from <laughs> potentially recognizable human to uh, superhuman conservative <laughs> vigilante. Yeah. And he could be out doing the shopping and there'll be a crime to solve. There'll be a bank robbery right next door. It's mm. just there's so much going on in both that and the Deadpool. Not a bad film and it does have... Uh, Jim Carrey and Liam Neeson in very early roles. Um, what I like is the fact that my um, mother-in-law has also been watching the uh, Dirty Harry films as they've been playing back, I guess, on one uh-huh. of the cable networks or something. So that's probably the only time that you and my mother- <laughs> <laughs> We must meet up. <laughs> yeah, although I, I, I hear her vinegar uh, syndrome orders on the way. <laughs> she might have something to say about Raw Forest next time. <laughs> so Dirty Harry would be, just be... Um, one film into four movies for me. Nice. Well, I definitely. I mean, I, I'm yeah. a big fan of Magnum Force because I, I really enjoyed that. As yeah, it's, that's it's one of the that, better ones. That definitely, definitely. is equal, and then it's as you say, it goes on a bit of a slippery slope after. And a great cast after movie too. three, but uh, I've literally only seen Dirty Harry, so I need to uh, fill yeah. in the gaps there. Well, I'm, I'm, now, I'm, I'm now pointing at the uh, the two Blu-rays. Yes, over uh, the very, <laughs> a very radio, radio thing. thing. Is, yeah. yeah, you can take those. Oh no! Well, actually, the irony of this is I have a four box. Four DVD box of the first four Clint Eastwood movie, Clint, you know, Dirty Harry movies that I bought in the states for like nine ninety nine and <laughs> put in a binder and have just sat there waiting for uh, the correct moment and and I don't know if you guys are often like this but with series like that where it's like well I've seen the first one. So do I go straight to the second one? But it's been a while since I've seen the first, so do I rewatch it? I don't know. I'll just watch something else. Fast forward nine years, and (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I chose not to rewatch the first one because I'd seen it so many times and remember it very, very well. But yeah, the second and third, well worth it. And I do recommend the Bollywood uh, take Kun Kun, uh, which yes. is the... What is it again? It's called Kun Kun, K-H-O-O-N. It is a Bollywood take on uh, Dirty Harry. It is phenomenal because it's got amazing out-of-place comedy scenes. It's got scenes ripped directly from Dirty Harry, and it has an entire musical number on the bus with the school children uh, with orchestral accompaniment. Do, have you guys seen phenomenal. the Fight Club remake, the Bollywood version? I have heard of it, but never oh. seen it. Okay, I think we're going to have to do a misguided Bollywood remake. <laughs> uh, Looking forward um, to that. Next yes, season. Yes, oh. it's, it's, incre- it's incredible and has literally nothing to do with the initial fu- original Fight Club other than that there's a Fight Club and there are rules. But... Yeah, so see, this so is we'll just, we'll just have to we're just making it up. Yeah, yeah, Nice. Well, that was one of my picks. So why don't we just go round robin and we'll okay. do one, yeah. one, and one, and then. So, what have I been watching? I've been watching my PlayStation quite a bit this week because I got a. Uh, Second-hand copy of Grand Theft Auto Five, and then also and we've that, got a very nice PlayStation Ten oh, going on here. Good. Yeah, I, I, I led me onto them. <laughs> I, I'm actually getting tan off the reflection from your voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, it didn't help that that led me onto my Steam account, and when I load up all the games to see how many games said you have played, 38 minutes. I decided I'd better catch up with some of those. So uh, a lot of Grand Theft Auto this week, but I did watch a few movies. Uh, we I watched The Devil's Sword for the second time. Oh, yeah. Which was introduced to me by Doug. This is an Indonesian action fantasy, I don't know what the fuck movie. <laughs> I have a, not seen this. I need, to get, oh, I need to lock this shit down. This was a Cinema's Eve, so I put so this, played this uh, found it on YouTube. It is out on YouTube in a pretty good quality copy, actually. Uh, it yes. stars Barry Prima. Who, of course it does. Because every Indonesian action movie in the 80s starred Barry Prima. And it's just a movie where... 
as usual with me, you start off trying to describe the plot, and then four seconds later it changes. There is, oh, there is go a go on. Let's. I want to hear him start to describe the plot. There is a sword. Probably a devil the devils. may be involved. It may be that it's. It's it, no, just go. On. I take it back. I, I don't want to hear about it. Yeah, we'll put up a trailer if I can remember because it is, it's it's a basket full of crazy and yeah. it's falling over the sides of the basket. There is there is a ton going. This was, I mean, when I first met Doug and we just started discussing films and it's like, okay, Doug's obviously into into art films and he likes the slower the Russian ones and then he bought over Indonesian exploitation and I went, <laughs> I like this man. He's invited any time. You know, I once about that. <laughs> it actually took that <laughs> Decision to be made. Oh, you know, we're watching some good <laughs> art films here as well, but yeah. uh, definitely when it comes to, it comes to the crazy, the eighties Indonesian ones, and mm. hilariously, the Cinema Z crew love Indonesian, but love exploitation movies, and they're yeah. expecting boobs are plenty, and I had to break it with them gently halfway yeah. through that Indonesian censorship. Most things go, boobs do not go. So, uh, so Lady Terminator, Lady Terminator, but that was apparently that was a US. They shot some scenes for the U.S. and some scenes. So, oh right, so the a, version that we've seen. Oh, okay, there's actually a it. massive continuity error. She walks out of the uh, the sea naked in, in Lady Terminator, and then somehow in the next scene has morphed a bra because there's a shot from the Indonesian one. So there is there is different cuts of that. Oh, and for the English listeners, that is Cinema Z. Cinema Z. Cinema Z. <laughs> I call it Cinema Z because it's cool. Okay. <laughs> so no, I don't try. Definitely recommend. And, and in 2020, if anything of America is associated with cool, <laughs> cool. I'll take it. <laughs> Only the and jazz. Speaking Only of the that, jazz. here's Doug with his movie. Yeah, well, I don't think it gets any cooler than the Baja Men hit, Who Let the Dogs Out? And, we uh, finally find out the answer as to whom it was. We do, actually. So, so just just to rewind a bit, I um, have been watching uh, quite a few selections from the Dark Edge Film Festival, which, like the upcoming New Zealand Film Festival, is online this year. And uh, up till the 19th, which, depending on how lazy I am, will be before or after you hear this. And or how lazy you are, let's be fair, you have to listen to. <laughs> um, but I have to get it online first. Anyway, so they've got about 30 films from their selection still available for individual rental, which is really cool because their initial um, setup was very difficult. to. You had to, like buy the film before the 36 hour window but then you could only watch it during a 36 hour window and it was you know everybody's figuring out how to do these virtual um film festivals and mm. and they ran into some bumps along the way and to their credit um they've they've gone the extra mile to kind of give these films as much breathing um space as they can and so we um watched a triple feature yesterday um a great film called the queen's man which is uh a sort of incredibly strange, obsessive guy who was the bodyguard for the um, wife of the Shah of Iran, who's investigating these paintings that were stolen by the mob, um, on, more or less on his own volition. Uh, amazing story. Uh, uh, an amazing portrait of obsession that I, I feel falls into that incredibly strange Daco kind of feel. It would have been perfectly programmed next to like Finders Keepers or something like that. Um, and then we watched a film called Wintopia, which is sort of esoteric Canadian documentary, but um, that I really liked about a, a woman completing her father's unfinished documentary about utopia. But the one that I was going to talk about, sorry about it that roundabout. still might. Well, you know, it's, <laughs> you, you get a Dirty Harry box set, Steve gets 45 <laughs> jazz musicians. <laughs> 
Um, I've got it, over two more since no, we've said down No there, equality <laughs> for the American in yes, the room. Yeah. Did I mention Tony Bennett? I didn't mention Tony Bennett. <laughs> <laughs> Who Let the Dogs Out is a documentary uh, that is based on a live show by a guy named Ben Sisto, who uh, one day at the library decided to look up who wrote the uh, Wikipedia do- document for Who Let the Dogs Out, discovered that there was a character in the description of it that was a hairdresser named Keith, and they didn't list Keith's last name. And he thought, that's not an appropriate citation. I'm single and bored, so I'm going to fix this. <laughs> um, and thus began an eight-year obsession going down the rabbit hole of where, in fact, Who Let the Dogs Out started. Um and as he goes farther back, the official story gets murkier and murkier and earlier and earlier antecedents appear wow. of this. And we get into questions of copyright law, of of friendships falling apart. He goes to Trinidad and Tobago, where um, the recordings initially came from. He meets the Baja men. He meets Jonathan King, not the Wellington director, but the uh, London music personality who went to this hairdresser who often went to Trinidad and Tobago, and the hairdresser would give him recordings, and Jonathan King did a version of this song that he had wow. picked up there that then made its way to a producer that then hired the Baja men to record it. Um, and it just... But then that at that whole level, which is kind of the official history, is like the first third of it. There's data recovery people involved. It just and um, like cinematically, it's it is literally more or less a TED talk with some B-roll cut into it um, because he it's his live show from various places. But um, just as a fun exploration of of this weird song and where it came from. It's a really um, enjoyable rabbit hole that doesn't outstay its welcome. It's like 71 minutes and, um, and is full of laugh out loud moments and, and ends with um, our host asking all of the personalities involved. The key question, who let the dogs out? Was it Keith? (laughs) (laughs) Spoilers. Spoilers. (laughs) Well, Keith has an opinion, but but everybody involved has an opinion. So, Keith seems like he's behind a lot of things. Yes. Could have been Keith. What else have you been watching? I uh, only very recently have been watching a film from 1960 called The Last Voyage. I think it is a true story about the last voyage of the SS Claridon en route to Japan. And it's a disaster film. Isn't Claritin like a... Um, Claridon. Oh, okay. It it stars Robert Stack, there's Dorothy Malone, George Sanders, Edmund O'Brien, Woody Strode, who is shirtless for the entire movie. As he should be. It's as as the um, Strode roles. Uh, that's actually felt really better than some roles with him with Woody Strode, where he's... Mm. Oh, actually, no, I'm thinking of Kim Forey there. Kim Forey's <laughs> underwear and, uh, and From Beyond has come oh back to Oh, my God. <laughs> but, yeah, Woody Strode. I mean, I'm sure he had the chest for it. It's uh, so it's a. I'm just going to ignore that. It's a, <laughs> a film that uh, it starts with a um, a minor. It's a minor fire on board the um, the the ocean liner. The captain decides. Oh well, for the uh, for all the travellers, we'll just carry on. It, it culminates in a boiler explosion, which it slowly takes them all out. It's. Uh, focuses on three separate we look at the captain and his team we look at the 
the team in the boiler room trying to get everything fixed. And we look at Robert Stack and his um, little precocious, lovely daughter and... Um, and his wife, his wife has been hit by a um, by a girder and can't get out. So those are the three stories we look at. There is no music in the movie, apart from the opening titles and the end titles, and it really works. It's one of the best uh, disaster movies, and it certainly has none of the camp of an Irwin Allen movie. So and I who directed it? And I shall just check up Imdib. Because yeah, I mean, is, as you say, most of the Owen Allen disaster movies are. It was all about the cast, yes, and the spectacle, but also the non-stop kind of music cues of yeah. impending doom. Well, there's a lot of things working for this. The, the it's got a strong cast. It's um, just an ninety-one minutes long, so it gets in and gets out. The director is Andrew L. Stone. He okay, also wrote it as well. He uh, brought us such wonderful movies as The Song of Norway. I've seen that, but only heard of that one one time, and that was in Password the Golden Turkeys. Password is Turkey's Courage, yeah, Ring <laughs> of Fire, Criterra. That one didn't Criterra make it onto uh, Mystery Science Theatre, so it sounds like he had one. Yeah, one <laughs> and then a lot of bad He scripts. had quite a long career, it's, right. uh, starting in uh, 1927. And ending in about 1972. But this last voyage is a very, very decent film, which okay. I enjoyed very much. So I highly recommend that one as a as a disaster movie that is doesn't have the camp and actually has quite a a darker, meaner edge than you would expect yeah, from a film. Than, mm. than just kind of when are we going to kill off this next celebrity? Absolutely, because <laughs> I've always yeah. found that with Poseidon Adventure. Poseidon Adventure has got some amazing spectacle, but. Eventually, it just becomes like a bingo card of okay, who's going down next? I've and actually never seen any of those big disaster movies. I this went is, through a phase of them. Yeah, I, I Poseidon and the first Earthquake time. And, and Airport and all of those. I went back and rewatched the Swarm recently because the Swarm was one of the first. <laughs> Why Alex would you choose to rewatch? Because it was. I think I was. I think I was actually <laughs> sick that day, I was, and I was watching a bunch of movies. And, and you'd rewatch Zombie Lake recently? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and it's nearly three hours long, so it took up a, a good chunk of the day. It was like two and a half hour long. He was right. sick the day that everyone was told, don't oh, watch the don't swarm. Watch this film. There is there is a lot to like in the swarm and Michael Caine's performance where he's just taken the, the script and has eaten oh, everything. I'm being of bitten it. by bees. <laughs> bees. Bees. Bloody bees. You don't and, have to buzz the bloody bees. Off. Well, <laughs> well my favourite line in that one is him shouting, There is no bee! <laughs> but, uh, in as, what? In, 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 a, in a small child's face. <laughs> so, but it's, I've got to say, the UNL, I went through a phase of watching them and they you can see them degenerate because the towering inferno still got some great moments beside the mentor got some great moments you get to the time ran out which is a volcano and it's it's an hour and a half of waiting for a volcano to explode and about 20 minutes of going why don't you explode volcano and then <laughs> four minutes of the volcano actually exploding and then the credits and at that point you go you just well, uh, time ran out time ran out but unfortunately time ran out of my patience about an hour beforehand so if you're going to watch anything watch Michael Caine just on the internet on that clip. don't bother watching this one so that's not actually your number two that's though, not my it? number two I haven't watched that was a long time ago um, <laughs> what we've been doing recently we've been watching of course our, our Sunday Night Family movies and our Sunday Night Family movie uh, two Sundays ago was uh, Drunken Master 2 oh because nice. Aiden does like a bit of Jackie Chan and he hadn't seen that one and it is one of the top martial oh, arts movies yes. of all time. Tremendous. It's 
basically at the end of the movie the credits started to roll and he turned to me and he went why does Jackie Chan put himself through all that because (laughs) he knows that there's no stuntman that's Jackie falling onto hot coals that's Jackie getting whapped in the face with stuff and then of course as the credits are showing the outtakes that he's just about getting his nose broken for the 13th time yeah it's it is just one of these movies which I can watch any old time because the the action scenes themselves hold up really well the drama is, is very Hong Kong drama but the comedy there's some I think it's Angela Miao who's uh, the, who plays his mother is just a joy she just mm-hmm. plays this amazing comedic character flipping back and forth between yeah I'm with my son and then to seeing the husband and suddenly turning back into the, the classic Chinese housewife having to be subservient but she's never subservient and also <laughs> does a few little martial arts bits herself she is she's fantastic and it really pulls the whole movie right up but the final fight scene and the and the, the steel foundry is just oh, raising mm, hackles. Yes. I mean, your, your hair's got in the back of your neck because you'll just watch. It's been twenty years since I've seen it, and it's still yeah, it is really worth watching any time. As and we've gone through quite a few of them. I mean, there was a little discussion on my Twitter feed the other day as to what was the best fight scene of all time, and I could have. Everyone was just saying things like you know, drunk master, all of it, and there's any Jackie Chan film you can look at you can stop at one point and go that's the best fight scene you've ever seen mm. yeah. Police Story 2 there's a fight scene in a playground which is has no real stakes Police Story 2 Police Story 2 is, it holds up pretty well and the this this fight scene is, it doesn't really even that. it doesn't really even add to the, the movie it's not a big climactic fight scene it's just some guys trying to beat up Jackie in a playground and the stuntmen yeah. are bouncing off playground equipment like rubber balls and as Every time you always go, man, Jackie's amazing. But then you look around, and you go, not all these guys are amazing. His stunt yeah. team, he couldn't have done it without them. And I don't know how many of them are still walking these days, or you know, <laughs> still feeling the effects of falling off a balcony. You know? Surely the best fight scene of all must be Michael Caine versus a bee. That, that was that was pretty good. <laughs> come on, come, come on, I'm ready for it, you buzzy bastard. <laughs> and on that note, I'm going to pass out to Doug because I can't talk that. <laughs> Um, so the New Zealand Film Festival is coming up, and I got to review uh, a few films for the book. Skite. Well, I'm just, I'm just I'm just saying that I haven't I haven't nefariously seen this film that I want to highly recommend, uh, which is called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Ooh. It's by uh, American directors uh, the Ross Brothers, who came here a few years back with their films Western and Chupalitos, which are observational documentaries. And, um, and in fact, have a second film that's kind of surreptitiously making the rounds because the guy who did Beasts of the Southern Wild, uh, Ben Zeitlin, did a new film called Wendy, and he hired the Ross Brothers to do the behind-the-scenes f- film for it. Huh? And when the Ross Brothers delivered their cut, they're like, but where are the, you know, the interviews about the making of it and stuff? And they're like, that's not what we do you know and you, you knew this and so um so it's never going to be finished but they're uh, quietly on twitter releasing um their link to a second star on the, and on the right or something like that it's called which is the story of the making of wendy which is playing at the new zealand film festival which is huh? ben zeitlin's peter pan movie that was shot on montserrat with an active volcano and so that the, the Behind the scenes documentary mostly just follows the kids who are running around and is is kind of all told from their point of view as they're learning what boom mics do and um, just kind of and and almost ignores the directors and everybody else. It's great. That's not the film I'm talking about. Once again, Um, the film is Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, and it chronicles the last day in a Las Vegas dive bar. And it, um, in a way, 
it would have been the perfect film to watch during this film festival of lockdown was still on because it just evokes the sense of place of being in a bar so fulsomely and the characters in it, the, the sort of the heart of the film is this main character called Michael, who's like, he leaves his books at the bar, like, you know, that he's reading, he showers more or less, whatever you might call what he does for personal hygiene in the bathroom of the bar. And, and this is its last day and who knows where he's going to go. And he takes great pride in the fact that he um, became a failure before he became an alcoholic because alcoholic failures are boring. But, uh, <laughs> you know, at, le at least it wasn't because he was an alcoholic that became a failure, but now he's an alcoholic. And um, but he's just one of this incredible cast of characters that, um, are spending their last day together in this sort of, you know, this community that like, you know, is someplace like a dive bar is that is this really challenging place for people who can't quite function in the real world, but function better there than anywhere else and have this community that's about to be taken away from them because their bar, the bar is, you know, shutting down oh. because the strip mall is going to be redeveloped. It's and like a depressing version of Cheers. <laughs> it, kind of, it kind of is, but it's also to sell the depression would um, be doing the film a disservice because it is also really, really fucking funny at points. Um, and, um, and I think, it, you know, I think actually, to be honest, I think two people could sit and watch it and one person could just, you know find it pretty much a 90-minute laugh riot with a few sad moments. And another person could find it a nonstop tragedy that they would be forced to concede they laughed at a few times. Wow. And, um, and there's also... An, there, I don't want to spoil it at all on the recording, and I, I urge anyone who watches it not to read about the film before it, but all I'll say is um, there's more to the film than meets the eye, and um, read about the film afterwards. And it just adds a whole other layer to what the film is but um regardless of it i think just in terms of the honesty and that if you've ever been uh in a dive bar and you'll know these characters um and you'll know you'll recognize that what the the amazing intimacy and truth that you're getting from them and i mean i think i i said shortly after i watched it, it's like part of me i'm I feel like either I just want to watch observational documentary or psychedelic horror and nothing in between, you know, it's like either, either just bring, either just bring me real people or, you know, tri trip me into, you know, never, never land. Uh, and anything in the middle is just a compromise. So bloody nose, empty pockets. Wow. Um, I also uh, wrote about Exile, Last and First Men, and sneaking Martin Eden. But you can read You can read what I had to say about those in the booklet. But I recommend them all. Excellent. Nice. Wow, you sold me. That sounds nice. so. The title of that one again? That Bloody one? Nose, Empty Pockets. Oh, that sounds great. So add that to your uh, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, and Last and First Men are for only home viewing. At the, so the New Zealand Film Festival, for those who haven't been paying attention, launched as a virtual in, at home only event. And then because we're lucky enough in New Zealand to have now have cinemas open, they've managed to secure cinema screenings for a few films. So uh, Exile and Martin Eden are the two that I watched that are going to be getting cinema outings. And Exile is a classic, hard, 
art film Hanukkah kind of crowd splitter, uh, you know, audience disease kind of thing. And I highly recommend seeing that one in the theater. Brilliant. Nice. Excellent. And my, my third and final, and I'm just going to stick to one. I'll they, go uh, for it. Boring. Because <laughs> I'm the good guy of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I, I Interesting theory. I can't back that up. <laughs> Defending your life. Ooh, what a nice film. Oh, I haven't heard wow. that name in a it's while. It's freaking awesome movie. I'm... Wasn't a great week um, last week for me, so uh, or the f- couple of weeks. So I just happened to choose a film at random, put on Defending Your Life, which is Albert Brooks and a little-known actress called Meryl Streep. And it is, it is the definition of a feel-good movie. It is just a lovely film about a guy who dies. Um, oh. Let's put that up front. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> dies in a in a car crash after he just bought a car for his uh, for his birthday, and he's uh, listening uh, to Barbara Streisand belting out some show tunes and gets hit by a truck, and he wakes up in a sort of purgatory way station, where he. Um, unfortunately meets the love of his life uh, or afterlife <laughs> <It's>, um, <laughs> and also has to um, what the idea of the way station is that everyone has to defend their life hence the title, title. Mm-hmm. it's they choose the times when you were afraid when you weren't your best self and um, and you've got to show that you have grown throughout your life otherwise you will be uh, sent back to uh, the world as someone else and those who um, those who pass get to go on to the next stage but it's just it, if you like albert brooks comedy it's got all of that kind of snarkiness and um, good clever observation but with a lot more heart than you would see in a lot of his um, other works. Even, and I'm not... All his films are worth seeing. Yeah. I love his films. But this one just got me, um, got me in, in my heartstrings. <laughs> and it's a beautiful film. It is. And Rip Torn doing uh, his Rip Torniness is... Um, Always reliable. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, very good film. I haven't so seen I, it since the cinema, which would have been what? I would have been 15 or 16. Wow. So I imagine like heaps of it will have just gone over my head. Um, no, I've never seen this one myself. So Yeah, it's it. I, I re- remember thinking it was, oh, this is quite clever, but it's probably more of those things like, that's structured like a joke, so I'll laugh at it rather than <laughs> <laughs> knowing what's going Yes, yes, uh, I can't grow a beard, but I'll stroke my chin as if I... Uh, I, mm. I cannot recommend it enough. <laughs> nice. So if you want a, a lovely hug of a movie, but with some real clever comedy, then that's the film. Sounds good. Right, and final recommendations for me. Well, the we did a double feature last night for a Sunday uh, family movies, which was The Hunt for the Wilder People, followed by Shaun of the Dead. And Shaun of the Dead <laughs> was a special request because my kid loves Shaun of the Dead. Say so. how old your kid is, kid. He's nearly 12. <laughs> and he absolutely loves it. It's movies. an R11, it's, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure. It's, this house is fine. You know, 12-ish. You know, 
What's that, sorry? <laughs> well, Hello, okay. So, so I should have mentioned we're showing him uh, the Predator a couple of days ago. <laughs> uh, once again, he requested no, that. That wasn't don't. my fault. Oh, yeah. everything that your kid requests. Yes, because he did want to see the Predator because we saw the original Predator at your house, Darren. <laughs> <Hey>. In 3D. <laughs> if I'm going down, you're coming with me, pal. But, yeah, we did, the, we did a, a great, interesting a double feature, though, I've got to say. Um, but... <laughs> Hunt for the Water People, great Kiwi film. Definitely have a good look at that. I'm going to skip through these two because my recommendation is not actually a movie. If you haven't seen Shaun of the Dead, then what are you going to do and listen to this podcast? <laughs> Go see it now, several times. I actually want to recommend a video game. It's a little two-hour walking simulator called What Remains of Edith Finch. Oh, I've heard of that. It is. You can get it for not much on Steam. And the less I say about it, the better. It's a walking simulator for those who are not aware. Is Instead of a a game where you have a, a real goal, you just kind of wander from location to location learning about, in this case, the uh, the descendants of uh, or uh, of uh, Edith Finch, not descendants, I should say the, what's before the descendants? The ancestors. Yes. That's the word I'm struggling for there. The ancestors. Finding, finding what <laughs> the fate of, of, her, of her ancestors. And it's really well scripted. It's got some really interesting little surreal moments and it's a massive emotional ball punch right at the end. So, fantastic little game, and I will recommend it, and I will say no more. All right. Wow. Um, I will uh, confess to a huge hole in my uh, watching, which uh, I was called out for, which is that there's a lot of the Universal Monsters films I haven't seen, and Academy Cinemas is doing a Universal Monsters retro right now. Nice. So I went and saw the... 1940s version of Phantom of the Opera this weekend, uh, along with the uh, Borlas Karloff mummy. And I have to say, I wasn't too taken with the mummy. But Phantom of the Opera, first of all, I have to confess, I have never seen the Phantom of the Opera in any form. Andrew Lloyd Webber, Argento, Lon Chaney, the novel... Um, I have seen Phantom of the Paradise, but that's about as close as it gets. That's not a hole. Um, that's the well that uh, Skeets was back down. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I've seen wow. Phantom of the Opera. I've seen, I mean, plenty of clips from the, the stage production. Never seen the stage yeah. production. Oh, I don't gosh. know if I've seen. I definitely didn't see the the movie. The Silent. Ah, uh, the Silent. And you got it sitting there. Somewhere? Um, I've got a lot yes, of stuff. Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> yeah, it's We're looking at Phantom of the Opera yes, right now again, it's because it's in that upper, radio. It's upper left corner of my DVD stack, which is normally the. Probably should have watched that by now, Stack. So uh, I don't okay. know if I've actually watched it. I think but I was given Death that. Race 2000 is in that stack, so Death. I don't believe that. Oh, okay, would that be stack's your... out of order. But uh, <laughs> no, I've, I've actually seen it. I've definitely owned it. I probably haven't actually watched it yet. So, so I, so I had sort of a double, double take with this because, um, well, first of all, it never occurred to me that Phantom of the Opera would have lots of opera in it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but actually, of course, the Lon Chaney version doesn't because it's silent. Uh-huh. And, uh, and from all accounts, the Andrew Lloyd Webber doesn't have much because it's more of a conventional, conventional musical. musical. Yep. So I somehow got the only... And I maybe the Argento one does, I don't know. But somehow I got the version of Phantom of the Opera that has all the opera. But actually, it's quite... Um, Claude Rains plays the Phantom. But the, um, the story's... Um, quite clever and quick and and gets moving quite quickly and i was like oh this has really strong bones to it this makes sense that they would um structure this into these other versions you know a a Mm. musical and all of that and then it turns out that 
the 1940s version has almost no plot overlap other than there's a phantom and there's an opera and there's a chandelier (laughs) that falls. Um, I didn't know this watching it. I just enjoyed it. And it's a bit of tonal whiplash because, you know, it does have um, Claude Rains as the phantom committing multiple murders. But then it also has this other weird, like, kind of um, the female uh, object of affection also has uh, the... um, lead baritone and this policeman who are her um, dueling love interests Mm. and there's kind of and it ends with what feels like this slash fit kind of thing where they they go off to dinner for themselves and you know it's like oh that's going to turn quite Parisian Uh, (laughs) well well, um, uh, but um, yeah I I was just really surprised at how much I enjoyed it I I found that um I've, maybe it's just the kind of the impatience and sort of the everything's going wrong in the world uh, that my attention's really split. But I've had a hard time recently focusing on what I would say, you know, older, slower paced films that, you know, often the slow pace is just the narration, uh, the delivery of the narrative. And it's not like, oh, it's slow because it's artful or whatever. It's slow because this is what storytelling pace was then. And mm, so I was... Yeah really pleased to get just sort of swept up in it. and I'm also just really pleased to be able to go to a cinema and not worry that I'm going to have to die even if I'm not wearing a mask um, you know which is again such a privilege here. I think 2020 is one of these years where it's a lot of escapism for me a lot of reviewing mm. older movies that I really love mm. just you know taking your mind off the fact that 2020 mm. is one of these years it's, it's you know it's, it's not getting much better outside of New Zealand it's probably going to get worse before it gets mm. better so it's yeah a lot of a lot of mindless escapism. I mean that's why yeah, I've gone back yeah. and I've gone through a lot of Jackie Chan, a lot of horrors, a lot of things that I you know probably that stack of DVDs that need to be watched. Raging Bulls in there somewhere. It's still still in there, but it's got to be watched at some stage. So uh, oh yes, at some stage you've heard it first. We find the narrative. All I need is two hours that I'm not playing Grand Theft Auto (laughs) Five, and I'll I'll, I'll sneak that in there somewhere. Yeah, (laughs) but it is the whole escapism thing is interesting because I do feel like. On one hand, this like desire that I have to be focused on what's going on in the world. And we have, um, I think I mentioned last time, some of the more social justice documentaries and other Mm. things that I felt compelled to watch. But there's this big gulf between the injustices that we're aware of and the societal problems that we're aware of and what we can do about them other than yelling at people which clearly isn't working mm-hmm. um and in fact most of the research shows it's just the opposite it's no. so it, it's you know and um so what can you do and i i don't really know but it's like well if i can like you know support businesses that are you know still you know trying to function like normal and support you know film festivals and stuff like that and filmmakers that are trying to like just keep going and you know being like hey this is how we can live as adults is have a bit more empathy towards people and tell entertaining stories and um yeah which isn't to promote bloody nose empty pockets again <laughs> anyway so three films that to, uh, all about dead musicians <laughs> the that we can't support at all yes. <laughs> yeah the yeah. reason for the season so let's return to <laughs> i actually proposed not <laughs> starting with our usual thing because i thought we, i didn't have anything to talk no, about. no we, we've always got plenty to talk about weirdly <laughs> true let's let's recap that's why we, we have a podcast <laughs> we've been riffing so let's return to the jazz so as we said to start we'll take a look at three movies featuring a jazz musician playing a version of themselves 
who made a recording with the words Around Midnight in the title. So jazz. You guys, jazz fan. Obviously, I'm a jazz fan. Yeah, a huge Happy jazz fan, yeah. Um, I, I mean, admittedly, going on a little personal tangent, the first bar I used to drink in underage uh, at the time. Ooh, I'm admitting it now because this was 25 <laughs> years ago. I'm not, anyway. <laughs> was, was, that uh, was your jazz version jazz of the siren. Jazz siren. Wow, <laughs> 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 I'm going to get you. Zip- uh, <laughs> but the first bar I used to drink in was a place called the London Bar, which is... Lovely. I remember the London Bar. London it was, bar was awesome. It was, I mean, three reasons you went to the London Bar. 100 beers on the back bar. And that... 100 beers in 1992 in New Zealand. Every other bar had like five yeah. outside. And, you could get <laughs> and, and all of them were made by Lion. Yeah, pretty much. And I mean, sure, I drank a lot of overpriced lager. It was lager. a hard time. Yeah. I mean, I paid, you know, six bucks for, a, yeah. for a, a fancy Budweiser. And I used to drink a lot of Millers there. Um, so, yeah, my tastes have changed since then. But you had the 100 beers there. You had the $5 burger, which was a, I still remember, a cheese and bacon burger that lasts you until 2 a.m. when you staggered out the bar and headed down to White Lady for another burger. one. They were amazing. Yeah. And the third reason was the Tony Hancock trio. And they played jazz there Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, mm. and sometimes Sunday afternoons. They'd sometimes expand to a quartet. It was the type of jazz that I love. It was... Tony was a drummer, and he had a bass player and a piano player. And sometimes that's all you need for jazz. Yeah. And you get there, and it would be... If you needed a, an exotic beer, a $5 burger, and a five-minute drum solo, boom, you were at the London bar. And me and my mates drank there for about a year and a half before we discovered a whiskey bar at the bottom and an Irish bar in the middle. And, <laughs> and so we moved around a lot, but we spent pretty much every weekend yeah. there. So that really kicked off my jazz love. And I've just discovered, looking up research, because I researched this week, hooray, uh, that his daughter, uh, he's, uh, as he's passed on, but his daughter is now a uh, musician in L.A. She swings with swing bands. Oh, wow. So I found her website, and there's some footage of Tony uh, playing back in the 1960s. So wow, he was older than I thought. He was in the 60s when I was here. So um, shout out to, to Tony. So it's interesting that, um, I mean, I, there's lots of stuff I could talk about with jazz. And I mentioned John Coltrane because Blue Train was the first uh, uh, jazz CD that I bought. A friend loaned me Giant Steps, and I taped that. And then Blue Train was the one that I got obsessed with. And, and then I did college radio, so I got into all the later freaky kind of jazz <laughs> um, and then kind of have come back around uh, when I was in Japan about 10 years ago I went to a bar that only served western scotch and played American jazz records nice. and so I got introduced <laughs> to Red Garland and then um, also like there's this thing in Japan where there's just heaps of great vinyl stores where um, there's, it's immaculately maintained and it's quite cheap because everybody thinks CDs are better there for the most part except for these weird little bars. So I bought all these Red Garland and Jackie McLean and Dizzy Gillespie records there, as many as I could carry, which wasn't that many and I should have bought more. But um, but also recently I've been discovering um, the, the current Auckland jazz scene um, because there's a bar called Anthology on K Road that has uh, the CJ hosts the CJC on Wednesday nights, which I think is short for Contemporary Jazz Club, and uh, they uh, so yeah, different jazz act every Wednesday night, and they just hosted on the first, which I went to um, GRG six seven, which is uh, Roger Manons, who's a uh, sax player and a trio that's uh, guitar, bass, and drums and they just like that was the album release for their album happy place which is in my car cd player right now and um (laughs) and uh, to me they to my ears they strike a good balance between 
classic jazz and <laughs> um, you know no where, where which is the new Star Wars character <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah where they're, play, they're playing compositions and and they don't feel like they're mired in amber they don't feel like that it's just like the same thing that you've heard in their relentlessly bound tradition but to me they're still quite listenable um, note um, Doug's version of listenable may vary from anybody <laughs> else's people, yeah. so I uh, um, <laughs> but they're actually they're playing Thursday night in Ponsonby Social Club but um also that yeah it's it's um i think there's there's such an excitement to me about jazz across that um both as a recorded medium but then also as a live um thing where you can actually see the musicians feeding off each other in real time and also get a sense of just um their personal energy because i've seen a lot of jazz over the years and like grg67 for instance they smile a lot when they play and you can really see they're enjoying that and um and look, and, and or it's a lot of their internal pain coming, <laughs> coming through. No, this yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll, talk, no we'll talk about that more later. But, um, yeah, and and, um, and I, I mean, I, I've been fortunate to see a number of great jazz players from Joe McPhee to Arthur Doyle to Peter Brotsman uh, to Fred Anderson, and to have that sense of their personality coming through as they play, in particular with Fred Anderson, who's um, a great Chicago tenor sax player who is. Uh, ran a club there that was really pivotal in the 60s to 2000s scene called the Velvet Lounge. And his playing is a little bit less extreme than some of the more Chicago um, free jazz players of the 70s. But seeing him play, you just got this sense of calm and also like just the history that he carried with him and how he moved through it. And it just forever changed my ears to his music. So that's... Um, that's my testament to the joy of seeing jazz live and yeah, jazz performed in these yeah. films gives you because all three of these films feature feature a concert in effect yeah yeah, yeah. Concert footage. <laughs> absolutely yeah. yeah that's another ludicrously specific connection that I didn't bother putting in because I didn't want to continue saying that yeah <laughs> <laughs> because we just now be starting to talk about because <laughs> all three of these one other thing I want to dis, or I don't know if disavow is the right word disclaim offhand is we accidentally wound up with three films by white directors um, which uh, may be a surprise in the case of Space is the Place but we'll get Very to that much, yeah. but um, yeah it's just I, a surprise to me yeah yeah um, I was going to save that as a surprise but I do feel <laughs> like woo, there is um, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's just part of the nature of who dominated the, you know, the filmmaking mm. scene for a long time, and that you know the the overlap of people who wanted to make films about um, jazz and who were also black filmmakers and who also had the resources was often you know relatively small, but probably should have dug digger, but deeper. But um, like Mo Better Blues doesn't specifically feature, I don't think. Uh, you know, which is a Spike Lee jazz film, yeah. but I, you know, features Denzel Washington. Yeah. Um, but you know, I haven't seen that one, and you know, there's there's probably ones that we could have found, and so just mm. owning that up front is that was a mm. something should have dug a little deeper, but. And Blues Brothers would have helped us. No, 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 John. (laughs) I I think you would find that's actually going in the opposite direction. Very much. Let's make two white people responsible for all, you know. (laughs) We'll just throw Back to the Future in there as well, where actually Michael J. Fox is responsible for (laughs) Chuck Berry learning rock and roll. Oh, dear. Ah, right. Well, skates, I think. Starting at the white end of the... Well, we're going to start at the widest end of the scale, so we're going to start off... In 1956, with the movie High Society, 
uh, directed by Charles Walters and starring the whitest Jasmine in the world, Bing Crosby. Yeah, uh, swell. To be the, fair, Harry Connick Jr. exists. He's pretty. Yeah, he was. He's on my list there in the kind of the honourable mentions further down. I didn't right. get into that section. Uh, but Bing's not the person we're talking about because the cast list of this is fantastic. Bing Crosby. Grace Kelly in her final film performance before she mm, ran off to become a princess. Luminous Grace Kelly. Frank Sinatra and the one we want to talk about, Louis Celeste Armstrong. Holm. Oh no, wait. <laughs> <laughs> no, Celeste. Celeste Holm was great. I liked yeah. it. But but Louis Armstrong is in this film and he's playing Louis Armstrong. And it's 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 interesting, he's the Greek chorus of this film. We, we literally start off with Louis Armstrong singing a song with his band on a bus and then saying the classic words, song's over, story begins. Yeah. And the song start a film. And the song start a film, something like that. End of song, beginning of story. And it, it just kicks off. He is the one. But Louis Armstrong, if you haven't heard of Louis Armstrong, once again. Where have you been? <laughs> we've got millennials watching, listening about the sound of it. So, <laughs> Louis was, he was born in 1901. Uh, jazz trumpeter, band leader, one of the most classic names in jazz. Satchmo, Pops. Is uh, he from New Orleans? He is from New Orleans. He was actually born in New Orleans in a neighborhood that was called The Battlefield. It was nicknamed because it was so poor, so rough. So New Orleans Jasmine. Uh, father immediately abandoned the family, uh, and his mother uh, had basically abandoned him after a while. But he was adopted by a, a Jewish family, or not so much adopted, but looked after by a, a Jewish family. They encouraged him to sing, they gave him jobs for working for them. And then he had the most interesting introduction, I think, to jazz. In 1912, he fired a gun in the air to celebrate New Year's Eve, was of course arrested on the spot, sent to the Coloured Waifs Home for Boys, and he learnt the clarinet while he was there for a couple of years. So he literally learnt his jazz in stir. When he blues. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. You think that's and it's <laughs> when he came out, he uh, he met basically one of the best cornet players in New Orleans, uh, Joe Oliver, also known as King Oliver. And he gave him pointers, started uh, helping him out. He eventually replaced him in his band. So he took over in uh, the uh, Kidori's band, which was an incredibly popular band in New Orleans. So. He became a jazz musician full-time then, uh, played on riverboats, so he had a, a real big... Hell, well, my cat's come to join us, so if you hear me out yeah. at the moment, that is, <laughs> cat has just decided to stick her, her nose into the podcast. <laughs> uh, he started making his first recordings in the 20s, 1923, uh, along with, uh, with King Oliver, and pretty soon after that, he really started to become a, a great session musician, so he formed the, the Hot Five. Back, he moved to between Chicago and New Orleans, and in New Orleans is where he formed the Hot Five. Basically, no performances. They just were a sole recording band for three years, and then he also formed the, the Hot Seven later on as well. They did some like sixty records. Uh, if you go on Spotify, you can scroll down for days on Louis Armstrong. It's only got a, a small selection, and he basically started popularizing what we were doing earlier on scat. Although he did a lot better than us. That's yes. the wordless kind of do ba 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 thing. So in the, in the 40s he signed with Decca Records and uh, was with them for a good 10 years. He did a lot of songs where he started taking popular songs at the time and jazzing them up and no one had really done that anymore. So things like The Kiss to Build a Dream On, Livy on Rose, 
Blueberry Hill was one of hers, which later on became Fats Domino's biggest hit. And then moved from there to Columbia Records in the 50s and produced some stunning albums in there, and some of my favourite. Well, what I would call them bebop albums. But Louis apparently was not big on the phrase bebop. There's, I found a great quote, bebop, I just play music. Guys who invent terms like that are walking the streets with their instruments under their arms. <laughs> <laughs> so he just continued playing things. Once he got out of Columbia Records, he was basically a free agent. He was that popular he could sign wherever he went. My personal pick for Verve Records is Louis Nelly. We team with oh, Elephant Show. One of my favourite albums of all time. Two, I've got, uh, there's at least two of those, Louis Nelly yeah. and Ella. Louis Nelly again. Yeah. Just amazing. His trumpet playing, her uh, singing, mm. the duets between the two is just, it's just jazz at its 50s jazz at its I'm, peak. I've got that in my car. Oh, nice, fantastic. Well, I've been on a big jazz kick the last couple of mm. weeks since we came up with this idea and now my son's heard an awful lot of Louis Armstrong. And Ooh, yeah. I could continue talking about him, but I mean, there's got to be better podcasts straight on jazz. You can look one of them up. I know NPR does uh, jazz podcasts. You can look those up. But he probably became known to me in the 80s when What a Wonderful World was on the soundtrack for Good Morning Vietnam. And I think oh. that went to number one out here. And I remember that being played a lot. And he just continued playing. He was always, he was a... A jazz man from the time he picked up that cornet to the time he died. And in this one, he basically plays himself. He is it's literally Louis Armstrong because they connected this film to the Newport Jazz Festival. So Yeah, which is had only been going a couple of years at that point. But yeah. the um, you, there's actually a great documentary called Jazz on a Summer's Day, which mm-hmm. uh, documents the Newport Jazz Festival at around that time and um, kind of gives you a sense of what a cultural uh, institution it was for making jazz legitimate to a white population and getting it out of the nightclubs and into, uh, you know, the arguably poisoned chalice of <laughs> the greater status of um, these well-funded festivals. Yeah. And it's, it's a, this, the basic plot of this film, of course, it's a, a remake of the Philadelphia story, which I have not seen. I know Darren has seen this movie, which was from the popular genre from the 30s of divorce Romances, basically, divorce couple. Will they get back together? Will they not get back together? The answer always was yes, they will get back together. Yeah. But there's always the love triangle, or in this case, a bit of a love quadrangle. There's yeah. everybody in this film seems to want to, you know, <laughs> make it with Grace Kelly, and I can understand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's only, yeah. Only trouble with this one is the the ages of the people involved, because <laughs> Grace yes. was 26 at the time, and she was apparently married uh, to Bing Crosby, who was 53 at the time of filming. Uh, and was being wooed by Frank Sinatra, who was 40 at the time of filming. And, and her was, Rimbaud, her, her fiancé was, was... Yes, he was in, well in his 40s too. They, they, did, they cast, I, I even literally forget his name, because yeah. they cast the blandest character actor possible, and there was no so way he was going to So wouldn't be on his side? He wouldn't be on his side, no. <laughs> and, I he mean, he's, and he wasn't a, a bad guy, he was just... <laughs> the the bland guy. The yeah, dull yeah. guy, and he, he played that part perfectly. And I'm, I could, looking at him, I'm going, this guy's got a, a pet in Westerns. He had the, the Western moustache, and he would you could see him as the sheriff in any yeah. Western, and he would have been a contract player, and I'm, I'm probably doing a horrible disservice, but look him up. But, he had a great personality that he kept at home. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, Frank Sinatra's playing himself in this film. Frank Sinatra... Is, is just brash mm. and, and classic Frank. And Bing is... It's interesting because Bing Crosby, of course, had had a good, great career up to there. 
but was of course the old school jazz versus Sinatra, the the young mm. upstart. Yeah, and they do that duet. Uh, swell party. Yeah, what a swell party it's been, and they they do this great duet, and it's literally they Bing drops a line going, "You must be one of those new fellows," and it's you can you can. <laughs> Go, uh, is there a bit of tension there? And everyone at the time said, oh no, there was horrible tension and Bing wouldn't talk to Frank. And well, Bing Crosby, yeah. he drops the similar line when talking with um, David Bowie in that uh, little drummer boy. Oh, yes. That's uh, um, a David Bowie asks, oh, are you into... Uh, are you into music? Are you into the uh, the current music? Uh, oh yeah, some of it's quite fine. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> TCM did a, did a little a deep dive into high society and said that no, apparently they they were very professional to each other. It was right. just kind of it was talked up that override right, you got this young guy and this and you know, and they they hated each other and said Bing wouldn't talk to him. I had a guitar teacher who yeah. told me, and I've never found independent confirmation of this story that when Bing Crosby was at music school, I think Juilliard. Um, he um, pushed a piano down a flight of stairs, and so he used to like to say Bing Crosby invented punk rock. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Very punk. I don't know what the truth is of that, and um, but it kind of there. It's funny because you think of Bing as such a um, smiley, avuncular guy, but you know, there's also the kind of even in this film, there's the moments where you get the teeth behind that, um, you know, big grin, and uh, yeah, stories like that just and the. Um, definitely the tension that has been documented in uh, yeah. there. But the, the, it's, I mean, the cast, I think, is fantastic. And Grace Kelly is... It's interesting because I've, I felt Grace Kelly's performance, It's a, for me personally, was possibly one of the weaker parts of the, of the triangle, that she seems to be overacting a tiny bit too much where I everyone else around is playing that. themselves. But just a personal feeling for me. But she, I've got to admit, she is a phenomenal... Grace, person to look at in uh, I, I definitely was swept yeah. up in, yeah. in the, the Grace Kelly of and, it you can, and apparently the, the engagement ring she was wearing she was already engaged to Prince Rainier of Monaco at the time so that's her actual engagement right. ring this massive rock she's wearing at the time mm. She was, and once again 26 years old swept off to out of films and that she'd was already had quite a career this was the yeah. last one wasn't yeah it? this was yeah. the very last one she did so I love this film um, I, I do think that Grace Kelly's first scene where she's established is probably her weakest scene. It feels yeah, like um, that, and she has a character that goes all over the rails in this movie, mm-hmm. and that's a scripting issue as well. Um, and so, um, once she's able to lean into those curves and play like the overly proper um, version that she's trying to impress the reporters with, or the drunk, or the jilted yeah, um, lover, <laughs> or all of that, or even the you know nostalgic romantic, she plays all those to a T. And I think it's the thing is that all those kind of edges of the character are so mm. well defined that it's hard to know where the center actually is. And I think that's why. And it may have also just been first day jitters or something Could as have been, yeah. well, where that doesn't feel quite as dialed in. Um, but I mean, I just feel like it's such a, um, I, it's it's just so rewatchable for me. I mean, I, mm. I'm often somebody who is happy to let things sit ten or fifteen years before I go back to them. But this is at least my third watch in five years, and I would happily watch it again. That's right the first time watched for me actually. I, I, yeah, mm. one movie I'd heard of and probably seen clips of. 
This was our last minute fill in for around midnight, by the way, I should say. And and I was like, let's do something that we know we'll love, or that I know we'll love. Hopefully, (laughs) you guys. He speaks for us now. Yeah, yeah. I I definitely enjoy it. The love may not extend to all of them, I saw. Yes, I love this movie as well. (laughs) Can I put down the gun now? As I said, my my, my Grace Kelly would just just say, felt that she's been overacted, outacted by the others, but. As an ensemble, I think it's a fantastic one, and real big props for the uh, the girl that played her, her her sister Lydia Ree, who's in the movie and then vanishes for an hour, but is such an integral character. Oh, and mm. she's so indelible, and she quit acting as a teenager, yeah, which is quite a shame because she's terrific in this. So yeah, she's hopefully that there's not a dark story behind that, and she just moved on, moved on but, to do something uh, else. But. but what did you think, Darren? Well, I I really enjoyed it. It's I, I suppose a little hampered by the fact that I absolutely adore Philadelphia Story, the original version of this, which is the Cary Grant, version. Catherine Hepburn, <laughs> Jimmy Stewart. Right. I say no more. <laughs> it is. Well, you know, if you've got to settle for them instead of Grace Kelly <laughs> being Crosby and Frank Sinatra, you do what well, you have to. Well, it's, yeah, just yeah. a, it's a tremendously light, ebullient, or I think that's the right word, a type of comedy. And it just sort of. And High Society, really good film. It's a lot of fun. It just doesn't have quite the same something or other. But it's a, it's a <laughs> film to hang songs on. I mean, you've got yes, some Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think it, it's, it's so. more frothy than yeah. the original. And the It stops for six minutes for Bing Crosby and Louis Armstrong to teach everybody what jazz, jazz is. is. And that's yes. probably my favourite scene because yeah. Louis is, even though he's the one that we're looking at and talking about, isn't about five scenes in this movie, but yeah. every time he appears... He's he the just, Greek chorus, essentially. He steals yeah. the scene. He, but the he, Greek chorus solely on Bing Crosby's side. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And he's... Prejudice. His, his, his <laughs> uh, band that he plays with, he plays with a, a quintet there. And they're, only, they're not even in the credits, and he only mentions their last name, so I'm going to give them their props. Clarinet, Edmund Hill, trombone, Tommy Young, Billy Kyle on piano, Arvel Shaw on bass, and Barrett Deans, his classic uh, session drummer on drums, who played with them for years. Mm. They are fantastic. They all get their own little spotlight in that, that six-minute number. We learn about what jazz is. And being not only a punk rocker, says the word to rock and roll, and apparently it's the first time on screen that it was actually ever said. Oh, really? When he mentioned when he says that's rock and roll, and boom, Bill Haley's movie didn't come out until later that year. Wow. So first utterance of rock and roll. So it, it's a fantastic jazz number as I said the songs are Cole Porter numbers and they are they're great as well I mean I'm you know, I'm a sucker for musicals always have been and the swell party is, is just a, oh, that's a, a show-stopping little number what a swell party this is that's, that's where Frank Sinatra gets to do his Dean Martin because he has to <laughs> sing while drunk and you know while acting drunk and it's just Dean Martin this movie is <laughs> basically I mean it's it's almost as drunk as Bloody Nose Empty Pockets. It's just, um, I, I, in my notes, I say third act hangover because the third act basically is a hangover. Everyone's hungry. And <laughs> Absolutely, that's true. And, and, One thing yeah. about Philadelphia Story is it goes a little bit... It's a little less homogenized than, um, than high society. Uh, without spoilers... She does sleep with him, is what I'm going to say <laughs> oh, in, right. the, yes. <laughs> in the movie, in the Philadelphia story, which is alluded to, but 
Uh, basically one. said doesn't happen in the uh, in yeah, high society. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's the kind yeah. of the did she or she thinks she does, even though obviously she doesn't because yeah. And, we, and, not, and, and those who don't know these not. films will not have the <laughs> yeah, slightest yeah, idea no. what we're it's, talking it's, about. It's it's a film where you, um, it's not much point to try to give you a, a detailed summary of the plot because the plot yeah. is paper thin. The songs are all is what's about. Mm. It did get two Academy Awards for it got best song and best score. Um, best song best was... Song, I don't know which one. Uh, oh, it would have been uh, True Love, actually. Oh, of course True it would Love. have been, yes. And it almost got nominated uh, for Best Motion Picture Story until they realised that the people that they nominated stepped forward and said, that wasn't our movie. We wrote a movie called High Society in 1955 for the Bowery Boys series. And <laughs> so they, they graciously, as, they, as the Internet Movie Database says, they graciously declined the nomination because it wasn't their film. <laughs> How does that even happen? Uh, Pre-internet, I guess. Somebody <laughs> just went, oh, there we go. Oh, they, could, they couldn't yeah, flip around and look it up and go, who? Two people who did they two lots of High Society. High Society the year before. Wrong movie. one, wrong movie. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so they, that did not get... But, uh, yeah, yeah, did get those friends. two nominations. Yeah, and, and as I said, the, the, the songs are nice and light and frothy. There's there's some great duets going on there. Yeah, but that jazz number in the middle is what it's all about for me. Because <laughs> Louis, when he, when he replaces his yeah. numbers there... And he's, he's, he's got the, the, the perfect Greek chorus timing where something's happening in three rooms away from or in a completely different house. And, you know, it's, it's time to sing a jazz number about yeah. it. So, Yeah, I did write down at one moment, not enough Louis Armstrong. And then suddenly <laughs> he was on stage for 10 minutes. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's yeah. not as prominent as a, of a feature as the other two movies we'll look at. But, yes. well, yeah. maybe, maybe not. Yeah. I don't know. And, um, and uh, to be better point out that his, he didn't actually record the song around midnight, but he... Record an album called Jazz Round Midnight. Jazz Round. So that that's our weasel. Almost ludicrously specific. Wow, well, it's yeah. specific-ish. It's specifically enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To connect into our next film. Uh, the uh, Newport Jazz Festival was where uh, Miles Davis uh, came to the stage, and in Smooth. fact, this same year uh, he he recorded he played the song "Round Midnight" on that very stage. This was around the time that he was um, doing uh, soundtracks as well, and so you know he did um, a censor pour le chat. Chafaud, um, the elevator to the gallows soundtrack. I'm scratching um, out my first note. Oh, that's yeah, <laughs> we so, all the same. So we're, we're, we're stepping on uh, the actual introduction. So, Darren, tell us about uh, our next film and our next jazz star. Dingo was its name of. It's. <laughs> So the film is Dingo, 1991. It's directed by Rolf de Heer. I hope that's how it's pronounced. Sounds very South African, but or Dutch, but yeah. yeah. It's um, so this film, Dingo. It really was a film while watching it for the first time. Uh, it just really creeps up on you. It's just a nice sort of gentle Australian film, and it just. Uh, I'm just reading straight from the IMDb. Here we go. Traces the pilgrimage of John Anderson, an average guy with a passion for jazz from his home in outback Western Australia to the jazz clubs of Paris to meet his idol jazz trumpeter Billy Cross. Now that's a, a very vague outline and we'll yeah. fill in more as we go into what we liked and what we didn't, etc, etc. I love this movie. It was a just such... Yeah, as I say, it just sort of started fairly gently and just 
dragged me along with it. It's um, a very, very fun film. I've got some, as usual, I've gone Cliff Notes style, so bear with me. Now, uh, just to go back over the Miles Davis, because we didn't get quite all of the note. <laughs> so he composed this score and 30 years earlier, Elevator to the Gallows, or Ascensio Paul Le Chauffeur, which was recorded in just a few hours, improvising each number and allegedly sipping champagne with the stars of that film, Jean Moreau and the director, Louis Malle. Yeah. So, Apparently uh, recorded at five o'clock in the morning, which is a very jazz thing to do. If you yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm on it. Excuse me, Siri. <laughs> we don't have to pay Siri. <laughs> Copyright violation. <laughs> uh, this film, it was completed 1990. It was not released until 1992. It's, the distribution was really difficult due to Miles Davis dying during the preparations for the full USA release. Oh. It was uh, thought to be a shoe-in for the Academy Awards for the music nomination. However, they fucked up the paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> Just to put it in a mild way, it's... Uh, yeah, spectacularly. And Another the, good connection. <laughs> and the ballot papers came out without the a dingo on them. So it couldn't happen. The trailers, the 50 trailers that they had ordered arrived late, six weeks late. So they, And they were found to be unplayable. So after that third, that third thing going wrong, the distributors just gave up. So that's why very few people in the, in the States, at least... Yeah, I'd know never about, heard of this until I started know about researching Dingo. this episode. Sammy Davis Jr. was the original choice, Wouldn't and he wanted film. to do it. And, um, but on location scouting with Rolf de Heer, they learned that he had terminal throat cancer. So that was, it could have been a very different movie. It'd have a completely different tone. I don't think we've made it clear yet that this is set in really remote Western Australia. Yes, we're Um, on our way there. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now the, um, Rolf de Heer, just to give a little bit on him. So he's Dutch, migrated um, to Australia. He was born May the 4th, 1951. He came to Australia when eight years old. Produced numerous short films. His first film, however, was Tale of a Tiger in 1984. Dingo was his third feature-length film. It was uh, the one before was in 1988, Incident at Raven's Gate. The one after, 1993, Bad Boy Bubby. Now there's some tonal shifts. That is a shift. I've seen Bad Boy <laughs> Bubby, and I'm still scrubbing that movie. Uh, I haven't, and I've been afraid to. It's be uh, afraid, be very afraid. It is. It's. Yeah. I mean, one of our friends considers it a comedy, and I consider my friend to be a slightly twisted <laughs> version of comedy because if it is, it's jet black. It's mm. it's black hole black comedy. Absolutely. But it is. It's a very grimy movie. To get some quotes from uh, Miles Davis himself talking about Dingo, he said, I enjoyed the script because it avoided the stupidities that you usually get with films about jazz musicians. I felt close to Billy Cross, and even if that's not the case, I could bring him to life. With my music, I am in the habit of being treated like a king, but for the movie, I wasn't exalted and alone. And that's what he loved about it. Right. And the final word before I pass over to the three of us to discuss this is what Rolf de Heer, his view of this movie is that it's about the fulfillment of dreams and the avoidance of regret which I think is just wonderful words for this film all right
Let's dig in. Right. So we don't want to do anything about Miles Davis. I just, I mean, there's a connection. Once again, there's an NPR podcast on his albums, uh, and that's and this really is the transcript we've just listened. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is just a list of all yeah, the yeah. other musicians I forgot to mention at the start. Well, completely different upbringing from Louis Armstrong. Very prosperous family. Uh, he was went to Juilliard. Uh, he was introduced to trumpet very early. Once again, thirteen years of age, but the same time as Louis Armstrong. He was born in the in the nineteen twenties. But he had such a different style because, I mean, the, the way we're going through this movie is almost like we are going through different styles. We're going through the classic jazz of Louis Armstrong. Miles was the, the cool jazz player. He played muted trumpet, a lot higher register. He played really close to the microphone. And it's, I've always thought Miles Davis to me is a hit and miss for me. He's, he's a, people exalt him, as you say, as a king. Summers has just does not go with my personal sense of style because he does play those those higher, mm-hmm. more improvisational styles, which I know some people absolutely love. And for me, it's just. Are you talking like Bitches Brew and Bitches Brew? Bitches Brew, is, Bitches Brew is, a, is, a, is a tough album for me to get to. <laughs> I've listened to it and I've. But then he, of course, he had the. the he basically invented cool jazz. cliche later on with the, what we've now gets referred to these days as porno sex and involved with the, the, the time but yeah you, but then and then there's also this kind of bringing in of sort of western style composition like with gil evans and working with you know um and sketches of spain as well and some of these uh kind of more classical idioms so that you know he had a real broad Although not as broad as our next jazz, but <laughs> really broad uh, set of influences he was bringing to bear. Yeah, and I mean, he, his, his big thing he tended to do was to have different instruments that, of course, weren't used. I mean, some of the, his bands had French horn players and things, so it was, yeah. it's really quite, quite an interesting style, the real fusion style that he developed. And he, he's definitely, I've got to say, one of the most unique players at times when you listen to some of his mid-70s albums. Not for me, but I can see the appeal for people that, that you know aren't just looking at it just for the classic, the classic jazz trio. We've got a lot to refer to as pub jazz from my days at the London Bar. Yeah. And he's, he's he really, really just continued to innovate all through his life. You said he never stood still. Yeah, I mean, I, I think kind of blue, for instance, can fill that pub jazz, you know, <laughs> and milestones and some of those early. There's um. Uh, so I really do recommend the Netflix documentary that kind of gets into part of his um, having to go to Columbia was he had to fill out I think his uh, impulse uh, recording deal and so he recorded like something like five albums in a week or something he just got you know Coltrane and the rest of his band in and like let's just bang out another number and and there's and so it's just this string of great like kind of you know um, small ensemble um, straight up jazz, bebop, whatever you want to call it, um, records that are really cooking and don't have the um, you know kind of heady ambitions of some of the later stuff, um, and it uh, also kind of in because his doc, his um, discography has such sort of strange lumpy bumps and kind of 
gaps. Heroin, heroin will that, do that to you. Yeah, heroin will do that to you. And, and <laughs> got into heroin very early, 1950s. There shouldn't be lumpy yeah. bumps in heroin. <laughs> yeah, yes. Not that I know much about it. Yeah, but, but yeah, but it also, yeah, and then also, I mean, he didn't play trumpet for several years. He'd, be, he'd actually, like, for, in the mid-70s, he put it away altogether and then, you know, came back to it. Uh, and so there's, there's a bit in the film where he's playing the keyboard and it's not playing the trumpet mm. and that um and if um have you either of you seen miles ahead it's a, nice. don, a don, don Cheadle. Cheadle. yeah right. no i haven't yeah, seen it yet. it's on netflix is uh, i don't know i saw it on a plane of all things but um ewan mcgregor is a reporter trying to track down don Cheadle during his um reclusive period where he's you know, running around firing guns in people's offices and doing lots of drugs. And, and that's right. Miles Davis, not Don Cheadle. Yeah, <laughs> Don Cheadle as Miles Davis. Yeah. But we, yeah. we don't want any lawsuits there, Don. Just to back um, off. To, to bring it back to Dingo, this movie, like, I, I'm familiar with some of Australian cinema, and so I think of films like Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and Muriel's Wedding as, like, having the volume knob turned up. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, this is the movie they turn the volume knob up on, you know? The the misfit in the small desert town mm-hmm. that has big dreams. Yeah. Um, but, you know, instead of playing it at 13, it's playing it at, like, 7, you know? It's just kind of... It's very occasional down to four. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, yeah. actually seven, <laughs> yeah. seven's probably a bit high. <laughs> um, it, it's it's very. There's there's a few out there, but is it Colin Fields who plays the Colin uh, Friels? Friels, yes. excuse me, who is not an actor I was particularly familiar with. He's quite well known here. It's um, Australian actor. He did Malcolm in 1986, which is was a quite a hit here in New mm. Zealand. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was in Dark Man. It's, yes. Um, and uh, Dark City. He's uh, all the darks. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a very good actor. He actually went on to um, was it River Rats or oh Water Rats? Water Rats. Water Rats. The the um, the Australian Sydney, TV yeah. Sydney police, police TV police show. No show. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he's had quite a varied career, and this was um, a very different role for him. Yeah, though, I said the '80s and '90s Australian cinema, you did get a lot of these ones set in the in the outback in the mm. smaller towns. Uh, so it's it's you know, I mean we've seen we've seen a bunch of them. I mean, you know, obviously Mad Max and things like that were set off out in the out of the the cities. But things like Fair Game, for instance, that we've yeah, uh, yeah. seen that we uh, you know classic sort of exploitation film, yeah, is set out in this this dusty, sun baked part of Australia where you know it's. Even going back to our kids' films that we would have seen, things like um, Smiley Get Your Gun and things like that back mm. in the back in the seventies and eighties, you had a lot of these these smaller town ones there. And the bigger the kind of you know the sort of queen of the desert really sort of as you say came along the later nineties yeah. and really started to push Australia onto the world scene. But a lot of the early ones seem to have been a lot more kind of Oz centric ones that wouldn't have translated quite as well. But which is why this movie is so interesting for me because it does have this kind of it travels from Australia. To Paris and the yeah. contrast between the first half and the second half of the film is just this yawning gap between nineteen, like late nineteen eighties Australia, mm. to suddenly bustling Paris mm. in the space of, of two minutes. And the story itself, you've it's it is so cliched in the fact you've got a a young kid who accidentally it's 
Uh, I think if Miles Davis's character lands in Australia, they weren't meant to. It was yeah. they just Alice Springs. Or Alice, yeah, yes, it was, it was a way town. Even. It's out, yeah. out, out in the outback. Yeah, and um, they land there and they decide to do a small concert, which just blows this small kid's mind. He actually goes up to the jazz musician and says, "You're amazing. I, I want to." do what you do and uh, he says uh, the Miles Davis character says well come and meet me in in Paris and that becomes his lifelong obsession mm-hmm. and there's lots Some of, to the lots of, of TV episodes yeah. and movies that follow those kind of things where you say something you never expect someone to follow up on that yeah. and <laughs> it's a detriment of his own relationship because the mm. heart of the matter of this, the movie is the, the decaying relationship with his his wife, wife yeah. mm. and of course in this the small town that thinks you know this this wild islander that thinks he's a jazz musician and he's plays, a dingo tracker he, he that's, dingo his, trapper. Yeah, that's his actual profession yeah. is a dingo and tracker. plays in a band which plays the most amazing fusion of country music and jazz because mm. i mean if you're in a small town australia country is where it's at yeah it's it's i mean you know new zealand mm. i don't think it's a country music country, <laughs> but australia still has Mass ones, but then he's As playing side, I love the fact that the drummer has a Metallica uh, <laughs> hat on his uh, jean jacket. It's, it's like it's a nice ev- everybody has their dreams, but it's like we're all stuck here, and the only music anyone will listen to <laughs> is this. Kids, so. And then he'll start ripping on his jazz. But yeah, yeah, it is. And looking at Miles Davis in this, because when he first appears in this, and it's it's Miles Davis and his and his band, and it's you can just look at the moment you're looking, you're going, "This is autobiographical. This is Miles Davis." At the end of his career, at the end of his life, because he died mm. at 67. You know, mm. He was very, very young when he died. He died at 67. At 67, yeah. yeah. In 1990. Yeah. Uh, whenever this movie came out, 1991, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so Not he... Not too long enough. But he, he sounds about 85 whenever he talks, yeah. and it's... Mm. Well, that's because he actually... He'd had that rasp for a long time yeah. because he had throat surgery to get a cyst removed, and he wasn't supposed to talk for 10 days. <laughs> and after seven days... Um, and this is back in the 50s or something... Um, according to uh, some of the people in his band, he just couldn't help himself and just started, oh, you motherfuckers. And, and so he got that distinctive rasp, rasp which he yeah. carried with him for the um, mm. rest of his life. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, he never quite regained the comfort behind the trumpet that he had after that kind of incident, I think. Um, yeah. But th- this was kind of in the phase where he was... Um, coming back into being recognized and and put out Tutu and some other mm-hmm. records that were uh, considered quite groundbreaking and, oh, and was sort of poised for that like <laughs> long long slow fade into glory into you know his and then he might you know he probably could have been playing the Newport Jazz Festival for you know thirteen or fifteen more years and mm-hmm. and things like that had he lived yeah. Did you? Uh, did, how did I mean? He loved it. Did you? I, I quite enjoyed. It. I was. I was. I was. I'd never heard of this film once again. I'd heard of the director from Bad Boy Bobby. So, yeah. I mean, I I prep for these not by looking up anything about the films, but by going and listening to the soundtracks. Right. Which was, I mean, when I listened to some of the soundtracks for what was going to be around midnight, and it was yeah. classic bebop, which we didn't do that film. Listen to this one. I'm like, okay, this is feels very Miles Davis, and I listened to just a couple of tracks, just without even looking at the titles, just kind of randomised it and, and turned off the screen so I didn't actually... I'm a nerd. So I, would, I didn't give myself any plot points, but one of the ones that came up was the jazz concert, the real climactic jazz concert. Mm, yeah. And I went, and that's very, very Miles. And then, of course, our third movie came along and went, oh, we're in for a ride on this one. But <laughs> more to come on that. Yeah. So it's... it. 
it took me a little while to kind of work out where the movie was going. Well, that but was the same for me. It just yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. snuck up on me. It's a real it's, rising. But it's got of, like quite a heart, yeah. and it doesn't. It does, yeah. It doesn't go to the kitchen sink lengths that you would expect. The way it sets up mm. the relationship with his wife and the the best friend who. It just comes out and says, I'm in love with you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if you were being less kind, I, I mean, I wrote down the word drama-free zone at some point. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm big on films that are observational and don't overplay their hand. And I, I feel like it eventually delivers its emotional payload. Mm, but yeah, it fun. would also be fair to say it takes the scenic route in doing so. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it would not, be. It's not but, super fast-paced, yeah. But, but it could have been quite cliched if it yeah. did do the normal, yeah, the normal bits. It, it has, and it doesn't do that. It has a triumphant ending, but not a fairy tale ending. It's yes. not a kind of a, let's do the end credits and show you where he went to. It just, you get the chunk of the story... And he it still comes big, back, and he, and he still back. plays his own birthday. Yeah, <laughs> and he still plays with his with his bandmates yeah. out in the desert, even yeah, though they're the a bunch of dicks patch. at times. Because well, he made yeah. sure a bunch of dicks at times. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh god, do I? Know. I mean, hey guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, I mean, and that that. Welcome to the last episode. of <laughs> <laughs> It's been fun. Get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, as I say, I, I did enjoy it. It just it took me a little while to get into it, whereas you know. Right off that nice society, it's just yeah. you know you're in for a, a nice, fun, frothy ride. This yeah. one, but it's kind was, of it's, is it going to be a comedy? A and drama? it's also it waiting for Miles. Da- it's waiting for Davis yeah. as well, which yeah. I he's second build, so you kind of mm. you get this early concert out there, and then it's quite a. I mean, he, yeah, it's a good forty five minutes later. But once yeah. he's in, you can't get rid of him. No, he's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I say that in a nice way. I would say he's not a natural actor, but he plays Miles Davis pretty damn well. Yes, so. <laughs> and that's it. He, uh, I. It's it's not natural, but it works within the character he's playing. It feels sometimes uncomfortable to be in the same room by proxy with him. It's yeah. kind of you, you you can feel the, the cynicism coming off him in waves at times when yeah. he's talking him, you know, about jazz. And it's and a lot, I know a lot of the jazz musicians probably felt constrained with record companies. I mean, you know, the long record the contracts and stuff that they would have had in the forties and fifties, and you're going to play this sort of jazz. And that's yeah. where that improvisation came from. Jazz was the breaking free. Of kicking through those doors. So, um, the one th- final thing I'll add about this film is the director off to here later on, uh, more recently has been doing a lot of films. Uh, the one that I'm most familiar with is Ten Canoes, but there's quite a few that involve collaborating with Aboriginal mm-hmm. uh, communities, and I think that um, there's kind of a telling uh, lack of that presence in in this film and some of the other films that we've talked about and i think um for some of these australian directors that have had longer careers um trying to figure out um how to rectify that imbalance without speaking Mm. for that community is a film like say um walkabout i I think walkabout is a great film and i i think it does a very good job of representing um the aboriginal presence through a western lens and owning that but um finding ways to t- bring those stories to screen that aren't about, you know, telling it through a Western lens is, has been sort of where he's taken his career to, which is an interesting um, movement from this film and seeing what's in this and what's not. Um, so shall we move off the planet? Let's let's head to space, because oh, right. space is indeed the place. Well, oh, you, okay. uh, before that, you didn't actually say what you thought of this one, Doug, so... Uh... 
What do you have to say? Uh, I, I, I'd say it's like what I'd call a saggy tent, where it has a really exciting beginning, and you know you've got this great concert at the airport, and then you have this really exciting ending, and then the middle just doesn't hold up very well. Um, but you, but it's worth it for uh, what's on those two sides. And, um, that, and was that, just final... in, that was worth it just for watching Doug imitate a tent collapsing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think the guide ropes hold it up, but, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> that final jazz concert is just amazing. And one thing that I learned uh, when I was researching this, actually not even researching it, but at the closing credits when I saw Mick Innes's name, because Mick Innes plays the dad in the um, feature film I wrote and directed Jake. And so I Googled, and he had stories about just sort of random, randomly being swept up in Western Australia and brought on to this film and getting to, you know, get up in the morning, smoke some pot, and watch Miles Davis play at the uh, uh, airport in Alice Springs, which is... You know, the busy like, life of an actor. It's a hard yeah, life. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm in the yeah. wrong career. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, filmmaking is quite glamorous, as you, um, as clearly would have been the case for anyone working on our next film. Uh, Sunrise <laughs> Space is the place. Space, Smooth. Space was indeed the place. Once again, segued the shit out of it. <laughs> That's what you keep me around for. So, um... Look, I, I am a fan of both Sun Ra and the film. I, I saw the film at a very uh, early point in my film history. Uh, it was just, I was more into music at that point and somebody rented it. Um, and so I was watching it for Sun Ra. And so I didn't really have any sense of, you know, cult film or even black exploitation or anything really. I just had the sense that something completely inexplicable was unfolding in front of me. I am the alter destiny, the presence of the living myth. What is the power of your machine? Music. And, uh, I I mean, I I defined it as... uh, following plot summary. When interdimensional traveler Sun Ra crosses paths with spiritual force, known only as the Overseer, they challenge each other to a battle for the future of the Black Race. Now, if you're lucky, I might take a break here and uh, give a potted history of Sun Ra while uh, these guys take a break. Or I might not. We'll see. <laughs> anyway, um, the main thing... The, the internet exists. The <laughs> main thing about Sun Ra is, you know, he uh, was born in Alabama under the birth name Herman Blount, moved to Chicago, got into jazz, and then got into something else entirely. <laughs> uh, and his, his, you pair of jazz pants. Yeah. Uh, I first discovered him in the 90s. Um, he put out dozens, if not hundreds, of albums on various labels over the years. And uh, the Evidence Jazz label in the 90s released a bunch of these and uh, as double albums on a single CD. And the one I got was uh, Cosmic Tones for Mental Therapy, paired with Art Forms of Dimensions Tomorrow. It just and, trips off the tongue. <laughs> it does. Uh, and and that's, that encapsulates in a nutshell Sun Ra's interstellar ambitions. He was one of the last black people to really be trying to take a giant you know, 14-person ensemble around the country at a time when the larger um, bands of the day had folded into smaller ensembles and the big band became the province of white musicians like Glenn Miller he kept people on the road by paying them basically nothing and making them eat slop and giving this crazy philosophy and giving them this extreme 
obscure music that it would send most musicians running. If you find Earth boring, just the same old, same thing, come on, sign up without a space wave incorporated. Every once in a while, um, a musician like Marshall Allen or John Gilmore or June Tyson would just key into it and and be part of the orchestra, as he called it, until death or even later, um, because I saw the orchestra after Sunra's passing in the late 90s in a basement in Houston, and they 13 of them proceeded in and uh, put, went on to play for two hours uh, Sunra's music and music that... Um, was probably only existed in that moment and never since <laughs> and uh, and uh, familiar melodies and all points in between and um, and this characteristic of what makes Sun Ra so hard to get a hold of I think um, transfers fully to the film after the end of the world don't you know that yet it's after the end of the world don't you know that yet now the story about the film is that Sun Ra is hit the interest in traditional jazz communities sort of went off a cliff, uh, was counterbalanced by this white academic sort of interest in the world of experimental musicians like John Cage and Harry Parch and uh, others. And so he was invited to UCAL Berkeley, did a series of lectures, and um, a white producer and director there thought, oh, we should make a movie about him. And the producer started by filming the orchestra performing live. And the director, uh, John Coney, loved cheesy sci-fi movies and thought that a tribute to Rocket Ship XM and Catwoman from Outer Space would gel perfectly with Sun Ra's <laughs> astrodimensional philosophy. Um, add in some black add in some black exploitation <laughs> tropes, um, and the bit of the seventh seal and um, telekinetic piano. And, and evil NASA. Ooh. Yeah. What, what 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 could go wrong? Discuss. <laughs> What could what well what could what, I mean it is what it is it <laughs> is what it is the jumble of that sentence describes oh, this movie <laughs> this is the only movie I try taking notes on and my notes make no sense apart from the one that says um, the jazz of a brass section falling down the stairs oops Darren breaks because Darren broke at that and we watched this at ten thirty in the morning <laughs> Darren Stone broke and cold sober nothing <laughs> to coffee not even a beer yeah I, I deliberately like we often watch things separately but I said. I want to watch this together because it's one of my great joys in life to see how people break. He never never actually looked at the screen. He just stared (laughs) at Skeet Uh, Skeet actually said at some point, I can tell you've seen this before because you're taking notes. um, Was was that you? Yeah, yeah, because I think there was um, such a um, slack-jawed... You know, I mean, the more movies you watch, the fewer times you run into something truly nearly impossible to comprehend there was no ability to process what i was seeing into note-taking that's that was what i felt (laughs) and yeah it broke me but the 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 film with with its weirdness and its wacky uh, wacky is a horrible word but there is some wacky in there and there's boobs um but it was 
it was his actual music that <laughs> broke me the most. <laughs> yeah. There's some of those. One of my notes, I think, just before you broke, was bagpipe abuse. There was no bagpipes on screen. It just sounded like he'd taken a Scotsman out the back and was beating with his own bagpipes. Yeah, a lot of Sunrise electric. He was heavily into the electronic organs and synthesizers at this point. So a lot of the tones that he's getting um, are pretty shrill or pretty. Mm. Uh, certainly outside the scope of typical jazz recording, even in the Miles Davis. You're not going to rush out world. and do a karaoke version of one of these songs. <laughs> but I mean, different different horses for different courses. I'm different strokes of different folks because I as I once saw the drone, as it was referred to at, at the classic comedy club when I worked at the, yeah. at the bar there, and it was 200 people in a standing room only watching a trio play one note for 30 minutes with some variations on the note and drum solos take a break come back and play another note for another 30 minutes with drum solos and wild sax improvisations and then they that was great and the bartenders and i were looking at each other going what the hell is going on and why is there so many people here for this we got less people for this for comedy last night <laughs> was it good or was it all one note hey, hey whoa, i see what you did there i wish you hadn't <laughs> So am I, actually. <laughs> I, I, I would go to that. <laughs> I, 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 I'm surprised you were there. Ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. I, I, so I missed this. This is a shame. This, oh, well. Yeah. It's, it's, um, and, and, you know, it was this, the music was, it was probably the thing that, that I was having the hardest trouble with because it's, it's as far from my bebop sensibilities as humanly possible. I mean, it's without literally leaving the planet. But the movie itself... I'm going to say, I was entertained. In a, in All the way through. It's just too much on screen way. to not be entertained yeah, by Yeah, it. it's never a dull. It's It's got some very discordant notes, which you can feel. I mean, the, the, when, the, when the, the, the evil NASA characters suddenly turn into evil NASA, rapey, bastard, punching woman characters, it felt... It felt very black exploitation, but it felt like bad black exploitation dropped in the middle of this art film, as if Jodorowsky had just crashed headfirst into... You know, a film that was made which should have had Fred Williamson. And it's, <laughs> That's it. it literally was, okay, yeah, we know that the honkies are the bad guys in this, but you've really taken that to the extreme. This film, it, it broke me, but I liked it. And I think that says <laughs> yeah. a lot about me. So let's not explore that too much. Uh, I, I, Tell us about your mother. <laughs> but, but the thing is, I... I, I, I as somebody who is, like, overly analytic and rational... I like having brain-breaking experiences, and and it's harder and harder to find them because it's just like getting past that analytic thing. And especially also as a filmmaker, it's like you kind of often now it's like I can't even laugh at inept stuff because I can see what they were going for. And, and even experimental stuff, it's like, oh, I kind of see what that's in a tradition of. It's like if I watch 30 minutes of like test tones and somebody in paint on screen, it's like, oh, it's a post tan brackish thing crossed, you know, with <laughs> oh, cool. Oh, that's but, what uh, I was thinking. But yeah, but, but I, I, every once in a while I'll watch something where it's just like, you just don't understand any of the decisions. And I find mm-hmm. that so satisfying because you're just forced to abandon your preconceptions and just and and you don't know what's going to happen in 60 seconds and you just 
go with it. And, well, you're an editor. Yeah. Tell me about what, what you think the editing was like on this film, and what was the chore must be like when they looked at the footage and just went, "What? What?" So, so I actually, um, when I was doing research, I discovered that that um, one of the uh, creatives on the film said the unsung hero of Space is the Place is Barbara Pokris, who was the editor and who had come to Berkeley and got into film because she was in really in love with like the classical. Uh, world cinema of the time like Satyajit Ray and things like that and she found herself behind the um, Steenbeck for Space is the Place <laughs> and doing these special effects and, and creating creating this narrative that integrates um, black exploitation and NASA and Egyptology and the Black Panthers and boobs and Sun Ra's <laughs> mystic music and uh, interdimensional tarot game in the desert and making it even watchable, much less work, and and it just ticks along, and it has a real, um, you know, I mean, there are many things that are, um, you know, ropey about it in places, but the pace isn't one of them, mm, you know, and the absolutely. pace, and and, and interestingly, um, Barbara Pokris went on to um, pursue her muse working on such films as uh, Missing in Action, Return of the Living Dead, and uh, Chud 2, Bud the Chud. So, um, I, think, I think that's a documentary in the yeah. making. Um, that's a nice, so, nice, nice journey, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd, I'd take her editing class if she were to offer one. So, um, yeah, I think, I, think it's, um, I think it's a very watchable film, other than if you find the cosmic tones for mental therapy more likely to drive you into therapy. But it was so deeply about something, and you could tell that there were some real issues that were trying to be told to the audience. Issues that are still being talked about here today. Oh, yeah, very much so. Just done in in a much more esoteric way than... very early 70s way. Yeah, I I mean, Sun Ra's philosophy fundamentally is if you don't know your history... And you don't know where you're going. Who are you really, and how do you get anywhere? And put that way, it doesn't sound. Yeah, it's you know he's like the black people need to understand that we weren't always just an underclass of slaves; that we were once pharaohs. You know that we you know, mm. and we created pyramids. We did these amazing things. And just because he's watched it three times, <laughs> <laughs> and just because you know there are no black astronauts when this film was made, doesn't mean that we can't reach into the stars far beyond anything mm. that can be imagined. It's just that you know that you're trapped in this sort of imagined limited potential that's presented, and he would have argued both by the white community and the black community. And so his music was about expanding that understanding. It's just that I think he expanded so far yeah. that his ability to communicate that back to people mm. often only you know <laughs> got, got there in drips and drabs yeah. but I mean, uh, it's a legacy that people are still coming to terms with yeah but in the early 70s i mean this was the where the divergence of jazz and funk really started and i mean i'm a big fan of parliament funkadelic and yeah. they when you look at these at the orchestra and parliament they've got the same aesthetic the that egyptian look that amazing yeah, that's costume. true the mothership yeah mothership but entirely different styles i mean parliament was was fairly experimental at times but yeah. definitely more on that <laughs> that 70s you know full-on mm. funk and you can see the divergence but you can actually see where they're coming from as well so it's yeah it's, as someone who's, who's never really listened to sun Ra, i've tried i've i found you know i've got, <laughs> i've gone through when I went through all the hundreds of jazz albums I've digitized, there's no Sun Ra on there. I did, right. You remember years ago, look, founding Best of Sun Ra Records or something, and having a listen, and I got through, I think, a track and a half, and we just went, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. 
we go. Yeah. And <laughs> it'd be interesting for you to track down some of those really early ones that he, yeah. some of the ones that he's assignment on, and just be like, oh yeah, this is a guy who can really play piano and is is not just going. There's a real new Star Wars too. character. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Please, no. <laughs> Have you seen any of Oscar Isaac's interviews recently? Oh, he looks like he's been let out of jail. And oh, everyone's like, that's... are you going to do a Star Wars movie? He's like, thank God, no. Oh, that's <laughs> only if I need a new house, I think. Was his <laughs> Several new houses. Yeah. That's, that's the, yeah. the Jaws the Revenge approach, isn't it? Yeah. You've never seen it? I hear it's a piece of shit. I've seen the house I built, though. That's lovely. <laughs> I can't do Michael. How many houses did the um, swarm buy him? Oh, well, I don't know. They're full of bees! Bees! No, 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 we don't mention that movie. It's don't no mention the bees. <laughs> wow. We just went through three different deep cuts. Bang, 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 bang. On that note, um, so next time we'll um, be dipping into the music of the recently past and much lamented um, but he left us with a treasure trove in Yamorakoni oh, the, the very, maestro very yes. and um, there's no um, shortage of a study that you can do for that one if you feel so inclined we'll um, be looking at some ludicrously specific films that may not involve any spaghetti westerns we may be going in an entirely different direction because we don't know yet you've got over 500 films to choose from <laughs> we'll find a link but it's we'll the, and it's the music season so um, with his passing, no better time to celebrate the maestro than, well, I would say now, but we got to watch the films and record this first. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.